chapter 2, verses 1, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who were. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man?
and that it is Messiah who represents Adam as the new king over all of the creation. We may not see the full extent of Messiah's dominion right now, but his death on the cross, the author's going to make this astounding point that it's Christ's death on the cross that confirms and inaugurates, begins his ruling over all things, even though we may not see it in its full final form right now. So even though things are not what they seem, what should you do today as a result of this passage? You need to live your life as if Christ is king because the point I'm going to make
like to us in his suffering, that there's a purpose there. Jews who heard about, very possibly through the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul, maybe others like Barnabas, that Jesus had fulfilled all the requirements of the Messiah. And they have come to accept Jesus as the long-hoped-for, long-looked-for Jewish Messiah. And so they are Jews that have become Christians. They know their Old Testament probably very well. And they are probably also not in and around Jerusalem, but they are probably scattered throughout the Roman Empire in little communities. And there's been a big cost to them by accepting Christ, accepting Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Maybe they've been ostracized by their family. Maybe they've been kicked out of their small community. And they may think the world to come of Messiah is a world where Messiah sits on this glorious earthly throne. They may think the world to come is the world where Messiah has defeated in an earthly fashion, raised up an army, and conquered the Romans, kicking them out of their area around Jerusalem, maybe even expanding Messiah should have done is come back and replace 
didn't accomplish what we had hoped he would do. Why did the Messiah then suffer and die? Especially if, imagine you're this audience, especially author, if you've written to us and you've now very strongly convinced us we ought to pay attention to the gospel of Jesus, that he is so much greater than the angels, why don't we see the consequences of him being greater than the angels. Why did Jesus suffer and die a humiliating death on the cross if the Messiah is greater than the angels? That's the point that he poses them in verse 5. And what he's going to do here is turn to the Old Testament and he's going to use Psalm 8. He's going to allude to Psalm 8 here in the next couple of verses to make his argument. I want to remind you that these people probably know Psalm 8 much better than we do. Right? They grew up probably as devout Jews, searching the scriptures for the Messiah. And they would have understood what the, what the author is saying here, I think, more quickly than we would have grasped it. Does that make sense? Because they had this basic, that was their basic understanding of things. And they've still missed it. They have a better understanding of the Old Testament. And that they still misunderstood the world to come. The world of the Messiah. And so the author is going to use a little bit of shorthand. And so we're going to have to kind of add on to what he uses shorthand wise to understand what, he's, what his argument is. So if you would, follow me along here into verses 6 and 7 and 8. His argument essentially is that it wasn't the angels. Remember, audience, it wasn't the angels that were to have dominion over the earth, but it was mankind. In verse 6, he starts out, it has been testified somewhere, and I have to pause, and I have to address that, address this little comment that he makes, because it kind of looks like he doesn't know where this is in the Bible, doesn't it? Did you get that feeling as you read this? Somewhere, somebody said, that's kind of strange, and that's really kind of an artifact about how he refers to Old Testament passages, and also how we kind of sometimes gloss through words in English, and we don't always really think about it. The first point here is he uses the word testified. The Greek word there is someone has spoken very solemnly about this point. And when we think about testifying, when do we testify? It's usually in court, right? Or some formal proceeding where we're going to speak very solemnly, right? We're going to maybe promise to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? So when he says it's been testified somewhere, really what he's saying is, Someone has made a very solemn statement, and I'm going to allude to it. I'm going to draw on that here. In other words, audience, remember this is a very important thing that was said long ago. Someone made a solemn statement, right? So he's not glossing over where it comes from. And the other odd thing he does, and you can see examples of this here if you look at uh, verse 12. If you look at chapter 3, verse 7, as he, as he introduces passages from the Old Testament, he downplays 
the authors, the human authors. So he doesn't tell us here that he's quoting from David in Psalm 8. And if you look all the way in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, when he quotes or alludes to an Old Testament passage. So for some reason, and, and we'll see this as we go through Hebrews over and over, he downplays the human offer. And what's ironic about that is we're talking about his, his poss- the possible objection that he's raising here is that the Messiah didn't do what we thought he would do in ushering in David's kingdom, and he's going to allude to something David has solemnly sworn to, solemnly testified about. But he doesn't include the name of David for some reason. So he does know where this passage comes from. He downplays the author, but I think he wants them to think about the fact that he is not afraid to use David's own words to answer this possible objection. And so he quotes parts of Psalm 8. If you want to, I'm not going to read Psalm 8. I'm going to stick with this passage. You're certainly welcome to look at Psalm 8. I, I, I think I've said a couple times he quotes it. He doesn't actually quote it like we would say a quotation is because he picks out the parts of Psalm 8 that he wants to use and he skips over some parts, not because he's trying to hide those. His audience can also go look at Psalm 8 and they probably do, but he's trying to highlight the important parts that relate to his, his, uh, his argument. What we need to understand and what the Jews at the time that the author's writing understood and that Psalm 8 is David's interpretation of an even older passage of Scripture, which we find in Genesis chapter 1. In other words, Psalm 8, when David writes it, David is giving an interpretation of God giving mankind dominion and authority over the earth. And that happens in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. We're going to look at that in a minute. I'm going to come back to that. That's called the cultural mandate. But I find it so interesting that in answering this possible objection about why, why is the Messiah not like we expected him to be? Why isn't he like the great, greater example of David? The author here pulls from David's own words, David's own interpretation of what the age of Messiah was to be like. I find that Very interesting. I think we ought to keep that in the back of our minds as we move along here. So let's look at this. You can, you can, if you want, you can look at Psalm 8 and see the relationship, or you can look here at what he alludes to in verses 6 through 8. He says, what is man? Uh, In the middle of verse 6 there, what is man that you are mindful of him, of the son of man that you care for him? David starts out his interpretation of this older passage, and we'll look at it in a minute. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and he starts out with wonder. What is man, God, that, that you care about him? David's saying, look around in the creation. Look at the awesome power of the sun, for example. Look at how life on earth, earth just teems with life. And all these creatures do amazing things and... Uh, you imagine if David knew the things we know today, creatures from the deep sea that, you know, just think of all the different videos you've seen about marvelous creatures uh, 
you know, and how they live their lives and how they go on. Uh, creatures that in the dark and depths of the ocean create life. Uh, enormous sharks that patrol the ocean, giant whales. Uh, you know, we could just go on and on with all the little details, all the little facts about the creatures on the earth. Think of the power of an earthquake or a volcano uh, or a tornado. Think of the beauty of, you know, golden hour. You, you people who like to take pictures and you're, you know, you're just out and all of a sudden that time at the end of the day it takes a beautiful scene and just amps it up to be even more beautiful than it was in the middle of the day. Think of the glory of a beautiful summer's day in North Texas in August around 2 o'clock. Right? And David says, why do you care about mankind, God, compared to that? The awesome power of your creation. Think about mankind in contrast. And I know, I know that there are amazing things that people do. There are, you know, amazingly... Uh, handsome and beautiful people. There are people that do astounding things, physical things, uh, mental things. But think of the other things, the negative things about mankind. Think of the dumb things we do. Think of how we are often completely clueless. Think about how we're oblivious to the creation, the, the complexity that goes on around us that sustains us. Think about how dumb people can be, how we are often... Uh, how often we try to do things and we just don't think and we make mistakes or worse, how we go around and corrupt and pollute and in the face of the glorious creation we sin. We turn these glorious things into idols. Maybe we can see why David would say, why would you give man dominion over this glorious creation? And he follows that up in verse 7. You made him, mankind, for a little while lower even than the angels. Remember what the author told us in chapter 1, verse 14, that these angels are ministering servants of God. And earlier he quoted scripture. How does he describe them? They're not low, humble, craven human servants. Angels are mighty powerful beings. God has agents, servants of wind. He has messengers of fire. And yet, mankind for a little while is made lower than them. But then look at the second part of verse 7. He says, you've crowned that same mankind with glory and honor. Don't gloss over the word there. You've crowned. What do you do when you put a crown on someone's head? You're making them king. You're giving them dominion, authority. And that's what God does. Let's look back at Genesis 1 now. Hold your place there in Hebrews 2 and turn to Genesis chapter 1. It might be on the very first or second page of your copy of Scripture. Mine's on page 2. Genesis 1, verse 26. And the context here is God has said, let there be light, and there was light. God's made the water and the dry land, and he's divided them. He's put them in order. 
On top of that, he's created all the creatures of the earth and give them places to live and things to do and ways to live their life. And he set limits on them. He has created a temple, an orderly temple to himself and the creation. And then look at the astonishing things that he says. You can see why David is in wonderment. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, don't gloss over the words. God literally says here, let's make an idol to ourselves. Mankind. We should not make idols. But God says, let's make an image in our own likeness. I've made a temple here in the creation. And now let me make an idol to myself within it to reflect my glory. Let them have dominion. Dominion, rulership, kingship over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created him. If you're uncomfortable with that uh, use of the word idol there, well, the author of Genesis is really ramming it home to us. He repeats it three times there, doesn't he? Image, likeness, image. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. That word subdue there, anytime it's used in the Old Testament, is negative. It's about a king going out and subduing his enemy. Brothers and sisters, when a king goes out and subdues his enemies, he doesn't take stewardship over them. He defeats them. It's about going out and making a slave obey you. That's very uncomfortable language for us as modern Americans. But you don't have stewardship over a slave. You make them obey. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me just ask you, if you like to fish, do you have dominion over those fish? How many of you have birds of the heaven in your chicken coop and do you have dominion over them? Some people are down here laughing because they've chased chickens around while dad's yelled at them. What happened to that dominion? What happened to that kingship? Because for a little while, mankind was made lower than the angels. But again, look at verse 7. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Does it look like mankind has subjection, has subdued the earth? Does it look like mankind has dominion over all things? Well, that's his next point. Let's continue on in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? He's following up this interpretation that David makes in Psalm 8. And he says to his audience, yes, David is saying that mankind had dominion over the earth, not the angels. That same mankind that's for a little while lower than the angels, 
You've got to keep in mind he was crowned. He was given dominion and authority. And the author agrees. Yet, if we look around, we don't see that, do we? We don't see it. Well, what happened? Well, in the fall, some of you may have guessed where I'm going with this. In the fall, when Adam sinned, he forfeits that dominion. John Calvin says that Adam, quote, deserved the loss of his dominion. In other words, it was the just wages for his sin. Adam didn't have an accident. No one else conquered Adam and put him in subjection under him. Adam was tempted, was lured, and Adam chose to sin. And in sinning, he gave away the dominion that he should have had. The dominion that he was given. And guess what? Calvin goes on to point out that the descendants of Adam, they are also excluded from the kingdom we should have inherited. I don't think we reflect on that very often. I've, te- I've taught Genesis 1 many times, and I've never taught the consequence, one of the consequences of the, of, of the fall is that we've lost our kingdom. We've lost our inheritance. What we've inherited, I've taught that many times, is the sin of Adam. What we own now is a condition, a sin condition that is just bondage to sin. That we no longer are like we ought to be in choosing righteousness. But I've not thought deeply about the fact that we should have had a kingdom on this earth as representatives of God, as his image bearers. And now we've been excluded from that kingdom. The inheritance that comes down to us is futility in this creation. Have you experienced that? Futility in this creation? The author wants to remind his audience that if they thought that the age of Messiah was going to be a Davidic kingdom, an earthly kingdom like the other kingdoms you see around on the planet, that they've misunderstood what has happened in the fall. Verse 9 now. The author's going to turn to Messiah again, and he's picking up this theme. But notice what he does here. Look at verse 9 with me, if you will. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, when I read it back in verse 6 and 7, verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. I said mankind, didn't I? And maybe you were thinking there, no, 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 he's talking about Jesus. Well, that's where we get this in verse 9. It's the author now making the connection about what happened in the past. What happened in the garden was a precursor to what is coming. Do you see that? Look at verse 9 again. But we see him, not mankind. The author says him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He's interpreting verse 7 for you. And then he names him. And interestingly enough, this is the first time we see the name of Jesus used 
in the letter of the Hebrews. Namely, Jesus. Let's go back and read that again. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. The author is saying, the psalmist is talking about Jesus. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see him crowned with glory and honor. See how he just takes the words of Psalm 8 and he puts Jesus in the place. He shows you his work. So while we ought to have been mourning the loss of our kingdom, we ought to have been looking back and recognizing that something is very broken today and how things operate in this world and expecting that the fix for that would be a new Adam. A new king. Not a king like David, but a king like Adam. Have you ever thought about Adam as a king? Does anybody, have you ever heard of any songs that sing about King Adam? He wasn't a very good king, right? He bobbled our inheritance away for an apple. You know the old joke, right? There's two trees in the garden of importance, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you look in art, the, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is always depicted in art as what is an apple, right? How many of you like apples? Well, the tree of life then clearly must be a peach. Right? A good juice, ripe. I know there's a few who hold to that theology down here. I gotta, I gotta go back to the sermon's gonna be several hours long jokes because these other ones are bombing. But look with me back, if you will, to what he means here. What the author is doing in verse nine is reminding his audience that we need a new king, and look what he says. We need a new king. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And when was he crowned? What do we, how do we know he was crowned? It was because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now that last clause we're actually going to look at next week. So I'm going to focus on this idea here. That because of his suffering, suffering of death, when we look at Jesus dying on the cross, what we ought to see is not a failure. We ought not see a victory of Rome. What we ought to see is the inauguration, the beginning of the reign of the new Adam. That when Christ dies on the cross, he has completed everything here he came to do in order to be the new Adam. Now you notice the author here doesn't talk about the resurrection. It's not that he doesn't believe the resurrection is important. But for his point here, his limited point here, that Christ is the new Adam, that his kingly reign begins at his death. He's going to just not go into the details of the resurrection. It's not that he doesn't believe it's important. But he's trying to make the point that at his death, Christ begins to reign. 
in the place of Adam, as Adam should have reigned. And so his argument is we shouldn't have been looking for an earthly warrior king. We shouldn't be looking around and saying, hey, how come Jesus isn't the president of the United States? Or how come Jesus didn't have an empire in and around Jerusalem in the first century? Or when is Jesus going to come and create an earthly empire among fallen people? We should be recognizing that Christ in his suffering, in his humiliation, and at his death has taken up the reign that Adam lost. Now what's this? Why does he keep going back to angels? Well, there was a common thought at this time among the Jews that the angels ruled over earthly kingdoms. Uh, if you're familiar with Daniel 10, if you would like to, I'm not, I don't have time to read it, but if you'd like to look back at Daniel chapter 10, Daniel describes this vision he has of these angelic, angelic priests, uh, princes excuse me, that rule over these different kingdoms. There's a, there seems to be an angelic prince that rules over Persia. And he's at war with another angelic prince that represents... Israel named Michael even names this prince and he calls them princes but he's clearly talking about angels and even though this prince Michael is fighting on behalf of Israel against the angel of Persia another angel another angelic prince from Greece is going to come and dominate the land it's strange stuff that he's talking about he's talking about envisions and this is yet a fourth angel telling him about it, but it, the point here is it led these Jews to believe at the time of Christ that angels dominated these earthly kingdoms. And so, not only are they expecting Messiah to come and usher in an earthly kingdom, they may be expecting that there'll be some kind of angelic revelation to go along with it. He's just made the argument we saw in the last chapter that. Messiah is greater than these angels. So come back to the text with me. He concedes, verse 9, for a little while, Jesus is made lower than the angels. But he points out that as soon as he's crowned, as soon as his death on the cross occurs, he takes possession of that kingdom. There's not going to be an intermediary time where angels will rule or continue to rule or aid Messiah in ruling an earthly kingdom. He's made their lower a little while than the angels, and this isn't an accident. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 reminds us that Christ's humiliation are, is not accidental. If you'll hold your place there in Hebrews and turn to Philippians Chapter 2, 5 through 8, vitally, one, probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament here in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, not being born in the likeness of an angel. When he comes as a servant, 
He doesn't come as a servant of flame. He doesn't come as a powerful messenger of wind. He comes as a lowly human. We can't understate this. God himself comes and submits himself to the rigors of birth. Just think about it. If you've seen a birth, it's not pretty. It's not pleasant. He doesn't come as the son of the Roman emperor. But he's born in an obscure place to a poor man and a poor woman. He spends his first night in an animal food trough. You know, those things are nasty. It wasn't a special holy food trough. Right? He was laid in the one they had. He was mocked. He was abused. Worse, he was ignored. He was rejected. His own family didn't believe him. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was stripped and humiliated of the few possessions he had. Folks, I don't think when, when the author says here, for a little while he was made lower than the angels, that covers it all, does it? And yet he's being crowned. He's the new Adam. There's no accident here. There's nothing unforeseen here. We have misunderstood what Christ came to do. If we look for an earthly kingdom, if we look for an immediate defeat of trivial earthly enemies, in dying on the cross, Christ is crowned with glory and honor because at that point he becomes the new Adam. He takes up his reign, his dominion over the creation. What does this mean to you and I? Again, the author's building on this main point from the previous section. We ought to pay much closer attention to this gospel. They're thinking about going back to the law. After all, it was mediated to them by angels. It was given to them, it was declared to them by angels. And add to that, it looks like that Jesus didn't really do what we thought he was going to do. He didn't usher in that kingdom that was to come. The author's saying, we must, pay, we must pay much closer attention. Last week, because if we don't, we can drift away for it and the penalty will be much worse. In this section, we need to recognize the present reality of our king reigning over this creation. If you're a believer, he reigns in your heart today. You've entered into his kingdom. But he also reigns over this corrupted, declining, hard, difficult creation. And he says, yes, we don't see everything in subjection to him. We have to take it on faith. We have to believe in the power of our king and his kingship. What are some of these situations? Do you hear this today? Have you thought it? If Christ reigns, why don't we see the results in our society? Why don't we see the results in our own personal difficulties? If Christ reigns, and I'm a believer in Christ, why are things so hard? Have you ever asked yourself that? I have. 
I have. If I believe in Christ, why am I not rich and powerful like Abraham? He was blessed for believing in God. If Christ reigns, why does he let these countries do awful things? Why does he let these awful dictators abuse people? A lot of times we're hoping Christ will come back and reign. And soon. And we don't want him to reign because we want to see his glory. We don't want to see necessarily his justice on the earth. We want him to liberate us from some present difficulty that we're facing. We want him to restore a kingdom not that he wants, but what we want. Have you heard this? Wouldn't it be great if Christ comes back soon? Christ has got to be coming back soon because look at how awful things are. And when he does, he'll take care of... I'm not going to name any names, but insert the current president, the last president, the dictator over there, your landlord... Your mortgage company. See what the point I'm making there? So oftentimes, we want an immediate reign of Christ. Not for His glory. We want it for our needs. We want to skip forward to the good end as if we shouldn't have to face or endure any suffering. I could go into now at that point preaching all of 1 Peter, right? We just went through that where he talks about believers, you ought to expect suffering. The prophets suffered. Christ suffered. Believer, you're going to suffer. There's no quick escape to the easy kingdom of Christ of our imaginations. But that doesn't mean Christ has not begun to reign. Sometimes we look around at the world and we become so defeated by what we see going on that the only solution that appears in our minds is some earthly approach. Have you ever encountered this? Have you done this? I succumb to this all the time. I've got a problem at work? I've got to find an immediate solution to my problem at work. Doesn't that just sound like common sense? That's my job. If I went to my boss, he would say, yeah, well, that is what you need to do. But you know what? Christ reigns in my work. He reigns at my office. I don't mean that everybody there is a Christian because they're not. I mean that he has authority over this problem that I'm having. Shouldn't I appeal to him first? Now, does that mean, you know, I just don't do anything else? I sit back. Christ's going to handle it. Maybe if I had enough faith. But I believe Christ, God uses means. So he gives me skills to work on things. And he's put me in a place to do that. So my point is, how often do we dash off without even thinking about a prayer? Think about the implications that Christ reigns. Maybe we would do something different if we thought about that. How often do we turn to activism? There's a political problem. We need, a, we need the right politician to deal with this political problem. 
We need to get out and vote. That'll solve the problem. Am I saying voting's bad? No, I'm not saying that. But how often do we think about the implications that Christ reigns over that problem? The author said we don't see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. And when was he crowned? Not when we saw him coming down the street with myriads of angels in victory, but when it looked like he was defeated, suffering on the cross. That was the sign to us of his inauguration of his victory. So when we got a political problem, yeah, we might need a politician. But we need to recognize Christ is reigning in that situation. And if we get some bozo politician and he doesn't do what we need him to do, that doesn't mean that Christ doesn't reign. That may be the sign that Christ is working in some way. And the kingdom to come in that situation may not be what we want or what we expect. You know a brother, a dear brother and sister, I know a couple. Things are so bad in my life, Christ has got to come very soon. Have you heard that? I just can't go on much longer with my problems. Christ has got to come soon. And I don't mean to, to, you know, wag my finger at that kind of sentiment. But do you understand what that person is saying? I need an escape from the suffering that's ahead of me. I don't need to endure it. I don't need to call on Christ to aid me. I don't need you, brother and sister, to help me. I just need to jump forward to the end. I think we need to go back to what the author said, chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. When you encounter these difficulties, brothers and sisters, look to Christ and is reigning over them. Call on him to help you endure them. If you look for a way out, You might drift away from the cross. That cross is a powerful symbol of Christ's earthly reign. So believer, Christ is reigning now. His reign has been inaugurated on the cross. It's part of God's divine plan. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a, oh no, things went off the rails. Let me try and get this back under control by God type of thing. In dying on the cross, the Messiah completes all the requirements to be the new Adam. Look at this. In dying, he pays the penalty for the sins of Adam and the Adamites. Who are they? That's you and me. All the people descended from Adam, which is everyone. He wipes out that sin debt. Now, I'm not saying he pays the penalty for all the people of the world. I'm not saying in a universal way. But I'm saying the sin that Adam had and the sin that we bear because we are descended from him, Christ wipes out on the cross. 
And in his perfect life, in keeping the law, Christ fulfills all the requirements of God's moral law that we should have kept. That the Jews should have kept. They knew the law. We Gentiles, we didn't even know it. And we were obligated to keep it. Think about Christ when the devil comes to him in Matthew 4 and says, Look at all these kingdoms that I have dominion over. There's that idea of angels ruling over earthly kingdoms. And he says, I'll give them to you if you just bow down and worship me. What did Jesus know? If he will just suffer and die in obedience to God's divine plan, he as the new Adam would receive those kingdoms. Every one of them. He knows there's no shortcut to glory. He knows there's no way around the suffering that he has to face. And brothers and sisters, when Christ lives that perfect life under the law, when he turns down the author, the offer, excuse me, to create food in the temptation by the devil, he fulfills the temptation that Adam failed at. And he becomes the new Adam. On the cross, he takes over dominion of the earth. And he's also going to be resurrected. He's also going to ascend to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And all that is coming as we go through the rest of Hebrews, where he is going to sit as an intercessor between us and God, making peace for us forever. But it starts on the cross. Believer, even if it doesn't seem like the issue you are facing, I don't mean to trivialize anything you guys are facing. I've talked to some of you today that are facing numerous problems that just seem intractable and hopeless. I know there are people listening because they can't get here today because they're hindered by health issues. They would love to be here. And it seems intractable. Let me tell you, those problems are not outside the reign of Christ. He is crowned with glory and honor over each of those things. And you have work to do in those situations. It may be just suffering. There may be other things that God has gifted you to do. But first, I want you to live as if Christ reigns over those things. I want you to apply that to every situation you face. Whether that means more and more turning to Him in prayer to aid us with these problems, praying for others as they struggle with these things. But I think ultimately it means having hope as we face awful suffering. Again, some of you are facing difficult, difficult situations. I'm not trying to downplay that. But do you believe Christ is the new Adam over that situation? That he is the king over it? Even though there is evil loose in the world, believer, Christ is reigning over it. Can we say together that Christ uses sin sinlessly? I think we can. Folks, if you're an unbeliever here today, listening to me, if you've not professed faith in Christ and been baptized, 
I've got bad news for you. You are also a descendant of Adam. And you also have lost your inheritance. You've been cast out of the garden and under your own power, you have no way to have dominion over this world. All the struggles of this life, having to make a living, illness, accidents, oppression, that's your inheritance from Adam. It's what awaits you at the end of life is a fearful judgment from an angry God because you've lived in rebellion against him. But Christ died in order to make the mercy of God accessible to the descendants of Adam. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ today. Colossians 1.13 Paul talking about believers. He says we've been transformed transferred, excuse me, out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're an unbeliever here, you too can be transferred out of the domain of darkness that you're in. You do it by putting your trust and faith in Christ. And the perfect life of Christ, God will give to you as a gift. His death on the cross wiping out sin... God will mercifully and graciously apply to you as a gift. So if you're an unbeliever, if you are in rebellion, if you're rejecting Christ, if you're looking around and you're saying, I don't see any evidence that Christ reigns, let me tell you, now is your time to repent and put your trust in Christ. Profess faith in him and come forward and be baptized. Now is the time. Things are not in subjection to him because this is a time of mercy. It's a time where he's bringing many into his kingdom. So as I conclude here, the author's purpose is to convince his audience that Christ is the new King Adam. That this coronation occurred as Christ was dying on the cross. That it wasn't an accident, that the Messiah didn't fail... It was their expectation, their understanding of what was coming that was wrong. When you leave church today, you're going to go back out into that world, aren't you? And you're going to face all those difficulties that I hope God has given you some peace from here during the worship service. But brother and sister, Christ is reigning. Live as if you live in his kingdom because you do. He has power and authority over all those situations. Be prepared to face suffering, as we saw in 1 Peter. Pastor Jeff did a great job going through that book, and you can listen to those things online on our sermon audio page. But as you encounter those things, one of the things you can start to do today in order to, to pay much closer attention to the gospel that you've heard. So when you encounter those difficulties... Start with prayer. Start with confessing to Christ that you believe he reigns over them. Asking him to help you to endure those things. Turn to another believer. Ask those believers who go to the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Pray for me. That Christ's will will be done 
in this situation. Because you have a faithful and vigilant king. He is reigning over his kingdom. And he stands ready to aid you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I hope and pray that you will convince us of the words in this passage of scripture. That we would believe them with our whole heart. That we'd embrace them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would put out of us every bit of sin, of weakness, every desire we have to use our own strength to solve our problems, every temptation that occurs to us to believe that the devil is strong and powerful and that he's having his way. Lord, I pray that you would aid us Aid us this day as we go out of here to turn to Christ in every situation that we face. To turn to Christ in our suffering, to turn to Christ in our joy. To recognize that he is the glorious, sinless new Adam reigning over us. Heavenly Father, impress upon us as we suffer to remember that Christ's suffering is a sign to us that he has taken up his kingdom. That he will aid us, that he's vigilant, that he loves us. And Lord, we pray in all these things that you know about, that we've talked about today, that people have concerns about, that they're battling. Lord, I pray that you would rise up and aid them. Whatever way your will is, that they suffer more, that they have victory. That others see what they're going through and know they're Christians and come to the gospel. And Lord, I pray for those who see Christians suffering and enduring, especially those who are oppressors, who mock, who trouble Christ, who trouble Christians. I pray that you would show them mercy and that you too would bring them into the kingdom. Finally, I pray for those little ones who are here that they would hear the word and that you would love them and bring them into the kingdom as well. That you would shower us with mercy, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us, and I pray that you do all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. If you will take your hymnal.